This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. Happy February. You ever know anyone who just gets all the breaks? Well, Governor Ned Lamont is one of those people, seemingly right now. He unveils his two-year budget proposal a week from today, and despite the economic damage of the pandemic and the state's crippling long-term obligations, he's doing it from a position of strength, really. Connecticut's been the beneficiary of higher-than-expected tax revenues, which have wiped out the short-term budget deficit, and the state still has $3.1 billion socked away in the rainy day fund. Many advocates and progressive Democrats want to spend down these reserves to help state residents struggling through the pandemic and to provide tax relief for poor and middle-class residents. But Lamont's been holding the line. Connecticut Mirror budget reporter Keith Vanoff breaks down the status of the state budget in a conversation that was taped as part of our series of legislative preview events. We talk about the Democrats' plans to tax wealthy residents and Lamont's rejection of that idea. And Keith explains just how deep a hole the state is facing down the road. But we start our conversation in a somewhat unusual place. Keith giving us good news about the state budget. That's true. I mean, we're basically, been, we've been enjoying for the last maybe two, two and a half years, uh, a rebound uh, in the stock market that uh, the previous governor, Daniel Malloy, begged and prayed for, and it, it basically arrived just as he was walking out the door. Uh, governor Lamont's sort of been the, the beneficiary of that. Um, but the portion of our state income tax that's tied to capital gains and dividends has been booming. And as a result of largely of that, we have amassed over the last two and a half years, a rainy day fund of a little more than $3 billion, which is by the way, the largest amount allowable by state law. It's equal to about 15% of the general fund. That's the cap. The other potential good news is uh, President Biden has proposed uh, a very huge stimulus package, but specifically I'm going to focus on there's a $350 billion component of flexible money for states and municipal governments and the old rule of thumb in Connecticut, because of our wealth, we generally get a smaller share than, in, than other states. We get about 1%. So if you're doing the quick back of the envelope math, if, and I want to sense, stress if that passes, that's another $3.5 billion, $6.5 billion of one-time money. That's the good news. But we don't know that that Biden stimulus money is coming through, that that, that big right. chunk that he's hoping to, to get to the states will actually be there. If that doesn't happen, you're saying this is still a better position than Governor Lamont could have ever really thought he'd find himself in right now. Absolutely. I mean, we are looking at, we, we do our, our state budgeting in two-year cycles, and we're saying if we don't make any adjustments state finances are on pace to run about um, $2.6 billion in the red over the next two years combined, about a billion three a year. Sorry for all the numbers. It's about 8%. And you might say, well, wait a minute, what, where, where was all that money you're talking about? The reason our regular budget before we get into this one-time money is still faced with problems is because, and stuff John and I have been talking about for, for more than a decade, Connecticut has a huge legacy of debt 
almost almost 30% of our budget goes to pay off that debt. We're talking pension debt, bonded debt, and the like. But let's stay for a minute on the good news. And that does feel a little weird for me to say that. Um, <laughs> you have even just what we already know Connecticut has in the bank, $3 billion in the rainy day fund. Remember I said, if you don't make any changes to the budget, you've got about $2.6 billion of potential holes. In other words, we have enough to keep the current state budget afloat for two years if we want to buy some time for the overall economy, not just Wall Street, to improve. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is still, I mean, more than 10% higher than it was before the pandemic. In other words, the pandemic hit, stocks plunged. By the summer, we'd regained all that value, and then we've built upon it. So right now, the stock market is the one thing Connecticut's economy has going for it. Okay. So before we get to some of the the bad news, I suppose, let's talk a little bit more about what this good news means for Governor Lamont. We're in the middle of a pandemic, but yet somehow he finds himself in a position where we've got this rainy day fund, we've maybe got more money coming from the federal government. What does this mean for the governor and his ability to do some of the things that he wants to do, some of the things that he might need to do if he wants to run for re-election and get re-elected? Talk about what you think this means specifically for this governor. Yeah, that, that, that to me is the big issue for this entire budget. Short-term good news meets a time-sensitive problem. And that has been the issue basically since the summer, since it was clear by July that the stock market had rebounded and Connecticut's short-term budget problems weren't going to be that severe. But, but again, when we eventually get to the really, you know, the pension debt, the fact that we have $90 billion in long-term debt, $3 billion in the bank is a drop in the bucket against what we owe and will pay over the next 30 years. The question then becomes, should we be socking every penny away so that there's another smooth state election cycle, or do we need to put more money into nursing homes, small businesses that are about to close, um, nonprofit social services, cities and towns that are out hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And if we say, well, let's get to the next election first, the problem is businesses are closing, uh, people are getting sick, and, and some people are dying. I, I think a lot of people in Governor Lamont's camp, though, would say that that's an awfully cynical way to look at things. I mean, it's not just about the election, of course. I mean, he has said time and time again, he doesn't really want to touch this rainy day fund that the state has built up because he's seen rainy days in the past. He wants to make sure that we're actually shored up before we start spending once again. But the argument you seem to be making, Keith, and I know an awful lot of advocates who say that the state has been too stingy are making is that this really was a time-sensitive problem. And the fact that the state didn't want to expend more money during this time actually is costing people big time. Well, you have a rainy day fund for a reason. And the argument has been, if the pandemic is not a rainy day, it's, if that is not a time-sensitive problem, uh, what is? The argument that has been given by the Lamont administration since the spring is, we could be looking at a huge fiscal mess. And, and if, if you'll indulge me, just one more example, you, going back to the numbers. Sure. Back in, in late April and early May, uh, Governor Lamont, and I would argue through no fault of his administration, 
thought the problem we're staring at now, this $2.6 billion, was going to be probably double that size. And he also thought by now the rainy day fund would be zero. Sometime between May and now, a whole heck of a lot changed. Zero turned into $3 billion in the bank. Five to $6 billion of potential holes became closer to two and a half. But my point is, we didn't just discover that yesterday. Things started to become clear in the fall by September and then again in October. And the legislature were in for special sessions and nobody wanted to talk about the improving revenues. And Connecticut has been slowly but surely acknowledging that. And at the same time, we're getting this good news in the stock market. We're seeing that we still have 190,000 people collecting weekly unemployment benefits. To give you some perspective, we lost 120,000 jobs in what we call the Great Recession of 2007 through 2009. We know that the entire hospitality industry is still fragile. We know that cities and towns are out again, hundreds of millions of dollars. Many of them, there was a new report out that shows basically borrowed to try to stave off property tax increases. So in other words, there are a lot of segments of our economy and the, the controller, Kevin Lembo has really been pointing to this, calling it a K-shaped recovery. While one part is, so we can do this the right way, going up, another part's going down. Um, those are all the letters I'm gonna spell out. Um, that's a real issue. And that time sensitive problem has kind of been put on ice. We haven't been really dealing with it as a state or many would argue that. I, I wanna just dig in a little bit more to our continuing tale, our you know, decade-long tale of bad news. You talk about the long-term obligations and you skimmed the surface a little bit about it. Some people who follow the state budget very, very closely know some of these numbers and know it's really important to understand just how underwater the state has been for such a long time. Maybe you can put into some context exactly what it means to have that much of the, the state's uh, budget going toward debt service what it means to have $92 billion in long-term obligations, just so people can get a little better sense of what we're dealing with here. Right. I think my favorite analogy on this that I try to use is crabgrass in the backyard. If you think of the state budget as just a rectangular fenced-in backyard, and the backyard is filled with everything you like, maybe you've got too much stuff crammed in it. You've got a picnic table, you've got a uh, kid's wading pool, Maybe you've got a trampoline, you've got a gym set, you've got all these things, and, and I'm, I'm trying to make them represent things we care about, like transportation and healthcare. And, but there's also some crabgrass in the backyard. And just go with me on this. Wherever there's crabgrass, you can't have anything else. And as the crabgrass spreads, which, by the way, is our debt payments, you start throwing things over the fence. It's like all of a sudden, oh, we can't keep the trampoline in here anymore because there's no room for it. This, in many states can represent 20% of the budget, even less. In Connecticut, it was pushing more than 33%, and we've already refinanced some of it and pushed it onto future generations at great cost. But what it is doing is it's leaching resources away. It's the magnet next to our budget compass. It is the reason why, when people say, why do we even have to talk about tolls with our, with our gas taxes? Don't we have enough money? Well, for a decade to help cover our pension costs, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars every year in gas tax money, not in the transportation system. We've leached money out of the municipal aid program, which is why property taxes have gone high. Where did that money go instead? Into the pension debt. 
we've been taking money out of just about every priority you care about to, to, to try to clip down this crabgrass. That is a, a problem. And we have overall, when you look at our pension debt, our bonded debt, our retirement healthcare debt, things that we're legally committed to, and, and I don't care what anyone else is telling you, we have no choice but to pay. We're talking about $92 billion the state owes. Again, we have $3 billion in the rainy day fund. It's great for the short term. But the bill that we have coming due over the next, I shouldn't even say 30 years, closer to 20, is monumental. So I think one question a lot of people have is, you know, politics is a short-term game. The governor serves for four years. The legislators serve for two. Right. They're constantly looking to get reelected. It's very, very hard to make decisions that are anything other than short-term, but you're talking about a very, very long-term problem. Just to continue with your crabgrass analogy, Keith, the, the problem with $92 billion worth of crabgrass is that that's a hole that I can't think of a way sure. to get out of. It's like the crabgrass takes over and it grows over your whole house and you just have to move. And we're not going to do that. I mean, what do we do about that problem? Right. Because we can continue to talk about it being this thing that's looming over every decision, decision that's made at the Capitol. But in, I don't know that we can do anything about that substantively, can we? Yes. What we can't do is anything that's fun about it. <laughs> what we have to do is reset our expectations because now that now I'm going to try to give you a little something to offset it. And I'm not saying this is the only solution. I'm saying the math is saying over the next 20 to 30 years, there is no way, unless you think a federal judge is going to tell one of the wealthiest states in the nation, you don't have to pay your bill. And by the way, for the people who say, no, the rich are moving, we can't pay it. We can pay it. It's not the death of Connecticut. It may be the death of Connecticut as you know it, but it's not the death of Connecticut. We can pay that bill and we're not even going to end up being pick, you know, your, your poorest state. We're not going to be Arkansas. Uh, we're not going to be Michigan. Um, but we, we are still going to be able to pay that off. Why you might say that? Well, let me point something out. They say since the last recession, the top 1% in the United States makes 24 times with the bottom 99% average. And there are a lot of very wealthy people in the bottom 99%. In Connecticut, that ratio is 43 to one. In Fairfield County, the ratio is almost 75 to one. To give you an idea of also what that translates into, into budget choices, Westport and Bridgeport, two communities very close to each other. If you look at their grand list proportional to their population, in other words, how much wealth can they tax for every man, woman, and child in those respective municipalities. Westport's grand list is 10 times the size of Bridgeport's per person. For every man, woman, and child, Westport can access 10 times the wealth. Even though if you're talking about the type of problems they have to deal with, crime, a welfare caseload, uh, traffic, potholes, whatever you like, there are a lot fewer problems in challenges in Westport than in Bridgeport. There is wealth in Connecticut. The challenge is if we're saying, no, if that's a non-starter that can't be touched, then what you will continue to see is the crabgrass explode and, and, and the short-term goals that, that that's the nature of politics will continue to do as much as they can 
to put off the day of reckoning. And by the way, it's still getting closer because the last point I'll make, John, is you're kicking the can down the road. We're not kicking the can. Can doesn't get any bigger when you kick it. We're rolling a snowball. It gets larger and larger. Every time we slide it down the road or we refinance our pensions, we pass on billions of dollars of long-term debt to the folks who are in kindergarten right now in Connecticut. Okay, so you, we've gotten to the point in our conversation where then we'll talk about taxes, okay. taxing that richest 1% or 0.1% here in Connecticut. That's something that as we've talked to the governor over the course of his entire tenure and certainly recently, he has, has said, I don't want to do. Uh, he told me on the podcast that he actually would like the Biden administration to do that at the federal level. And it looks as though the Biden administration is going to attempt to do something just like that. What's funny, Keith, is I actually was watching an interview on CNBC in which uh, Elizabeth Warren was talking to one of their hosts about whether or not people would get up and leave the country if there is a marginal extra tax placed on the wealthiest 1%. We're concerned about people leaving the state. So first question, are people leaving the state or going to leave the state because the state is going to raise taxes on the wealthiest individuals? Uh, the, the data that we have, the U.S. Census data consistently shows that is not a factor. And I'll just give you two examples. Um, there is one state in the nation that has increased its income every year by migration. I'm not going to say it's increased its overall income. There are a lot of factors. Did they grow jobs? Did people get raises? But if you say, okay, this state I'm thinking of, how many people moved in and what, did, what were they making? How many people moved out? And what were they making? Can you guess the state that's gained income via migration every year for the last 30 years? It's that, <laughs> it's that paragon of wealth, Arkansas. Oh, of course. Which ranks basically competes with Mississippi for dead last in just about every poverty metric you can think about for the simple th reasons that you can expect. When you're on the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. Every year, <laughs> the odds would suggest the people moving out of Arkansas are poorer than the people who move into it. The converse is true with Connecticut, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, and just about every state that ranks near the top in per capita uh, income and for that matter, per capita wealth. Every year, the incomes of the people who move out of Connecticut are generally higher than the incomes of the people who move into Connecticut from other states. But this rate of exodus, that you would call it, is basically the same and has been for the last 40 years, like stamping out license plates. And if you want a really good example, and this is the last point I'll make on this, in 1991, when we passed the state income tax, just before we adopted it, we already had an income tax on the books for 20 years, but it was only aimed at the wealthy. We taxed capital gains, if you made enough of them, at 7%. We taxed dividends and interest as high as 13%. When the income tax was passed, all income initially was taxed at a flat rate of 4.5%, meaning for Fairfield County, it was a massive tax cut. Massive. For the next five years, income migrated out of Connecticut at the exact same pace it had for the five years prior to that. By that logic, people should have been pouring into Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Nothing changed. That has still basically been the story right up until now. He doesn't have any interest in entertaining tax hikes on the richest Connecticut residents. 
No, and I, I do think we should clarify, a lot of these proposals for tax hikes on the rich are, from his own party, are uh, basically founded in a principle of revenue neutrality, meaning, okay, yes, because we have some projected deficits, people are saying, I want to raise taxes on the rich to pay for a tax cut on the middle class, to pay for more tax relief on the poor, or to pay for more property tax relief for municipalities. Um, so, and I, look, I fall into the same trap. I say it, I ask the governor, you know, what's your position on raising taxes on the wealthy? But a lot of these proposals are really about a form of wealth redistribution. And Governor Lamont is saying, well, I don't wanna raise taxes on anyone, therefore, because that is really the only way right now you could do it. I mean, nobody's looking, I think, to raise taxes to launch new programs in Connecticut. But also new nobody's spending looking, programs. But, but nobody's looking to raise taxes either to solve the long-term problem that you're talking about either. That debate is not happening this year. That's correct. No, so it's just short-term. What can we do to help people who are struggling in COVID to put more dollars into certain homes? That's been the, the debate for this year. So when you wrote this week about uh, Senate President Martin Looney coming out with a, a plan to tax uh, homes of richer people in the right. state, maybe you can explain a little bit about what is in his plan and where those dollars would go. Again, this is not money that's going to solve our long-term problems. Right. Uh, what Senator Looney proposed, he was trying to have a, a progressive element and stay away from the income tax because it's such a political lightning rod. And he does have another proposal, which does involve income. But the, the, the one you're talking about, John, is he would create a new statewide mill rate of 1%. However, the first $300,000 of assessed value on your house would be exempt. Now, keep in mind, the assessed value of your house is equal to 70% of its market value. So if you're saying, well, what house is going to get hit? Your house would have to be, you'd have to be able to sell it for more than $430,000 before you owe anything. And the thinking is being that if, if, you know, Governor Lamont says, well, if we raise taxes on the rich, they'll flee the state. Senator Looney saying, well, unless they're going to find some way to deconstruct their house and haul it away with them, they're going to have to sell their house to someone else who's going to come into Connecticut. So if we tax the house, we keep the wealth in Connecticut. And the goal would be to turn around, take that money and funnel it back into communities with the, the high poverty levels. Does that have a chance of passing? I think Governor Lamont, I, I, I don't think, first of all, the, the, the Republican minority in the House or the Senate would support it. I don't think Governor Lamont, I mean, he's, he's pretty much drawn a line in the sand. I think his own party is trying to force a debate um, because Governor Lamont has certainly been very cautious. He has not said anything about running for re-election. He has not made any announcements. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of Democrats in the General Assembly expect that he's running, expect him to run again. Um, remember that he actually campaigned for the office in 2018 with a platform that had a huge uh, progressive taxation proposal. A, I shouldn't say huge, a very significant progressive taxation proposal that he ultimately scrapped. And they're hoping that they can put some pressure on him. Yeah, you, you and I have talked about this. Part of what he ran on was providing tax relief and tax yes. cuts to poor and middle-class uh, individuals. It, it would have been a pretty big tax cut. Yes. It's something that he did not deliver on. And this is an, another thing that 
you've suggested perhaps he, he could have done given the money coming in from Wall Street. Right. Well, when, when he was running in 2018, in fairness, he was running into a, a campaign message that was, again, not trying to take sides, just looking at the math, uh, was empirically dubious at best. And the, the Republican candidate, uh, Bob Stefanowski, had proposed phasing out the state income tax. I'm not talking about what's fair, what's right. I'm saying, what's, you know, what does two plus two add up to? Uh, the income tax raises half the money for the state budget. Um, if you took the income tax away, the sales tax, which is our next biggest revenue engine, would basically cover the payments on the pension and the bonded debt. You get to run, you haven't even given cities and towns any money and you've got to run the rest of government uh, and you have to run a Medicaid program and you have nothing else left. In other words, it just couldn't be done. And the Lamont campaign was understandably frustrated, I think, with the news media that people were not pointing out that this person was promising something, that the math didn't come close to adding up. So they said, well, we're going to come out with a realistic tax relief plan. And it was an income tax cut for the poor and the middle class by expanding a particular credit within the state income tax, the property tax credit. Trying to analyze that, I still asked the Lamont campaign, how are you going to pay for this? Because there were some challenges that whoever was going to be governor in 2019 and 2020 faced, even without knowing the pandemic was going to happen. The point that I'm getting at is the Lamont administration said, we're convinced we're going to pay for it. We, we have a way to pay for it. And they showed how they were going to do it. In his first year and a half in office, the fiscal conditions did not get any worse. In fact, they got marginally better than the projections held when he made his promise. He instead found that it was harder to balance the budget than he thought. Um, in fact, it was a proposal to tax the rich that the legislature had put forward to, to tax the capital gains earnings of households that made more than $500,000 a year. The Lamont administration insisted on killing that. Well, then there was no way to balance the legislature's budget unless his tax relief also went on hold. So everything went into limbo. Since then, Governor Lamont has just said, I don't believe we should be doing tax redistribution at the state level. He sincerely believes it will produce wealth exodus out of the state. Uh, he says if it should be done, it should be done at the federal level. The challenge for that is, as we talked about, Connecticut generally gets the smallest share of federal money because of our great wealth. So some progressives in the legislature have essentially proposed uh, tax relief that is on par with what Lamont had promised. And I'm wondering what traction you think that that's going to get, Keith, without the governor's support. I think it's going to get a robust debate. I really do. I'm not sure beyond that because, um, and, and you know, you've already mentioned uh, Senator Looney's proposal on um, the statewide property tax. He also brought back that capital gains tax I talked about. Uh, Representative Sean Scanlon from Guilford has proposed a new income tax credit based on the federal child tax credit. This would give probably about uh, close to about $450 million a year by the time it's fully implemented to poor and middle-class families. Um, Sean did not say, oh, I'm committed only to taxing the rich, but he said, I'm not going to cut programs that people rely upon, and I'm not going to raise taxes in the poor and middle class to pay for their own tax relief. So it doesn't leave a lot of other options for, for where to go. That's also gotten the attention of the state employee unions who very much remember that back in May, 
when the administration thought the pandemic was going to cause much more economic chaos for the state budget because they didn't know Wall Street was going to rebound. They asked the unions for concessions. A lot of people forgot and the union said, no, we've already given three times in the last decade. We're not giving, any, we're not giving again. I think they're going to put a lot of pressure on him. I still think ultimately he's going to draw the line. But if I can just ramble on for one more minute, sure. I think that's what's going to make, I think this year is going to set up uh, one of the most contentious budget debates next year that we've seen in a long time. I think Governor Lamont will try to dig in and say, no, I don't want to do any tax redistribution. And no, we can't use this rainy day fund for any new programs because he'll correctly point out it's one-time money. But it's been a long time, John. I, I trying to think back in my career the last time somebody ran for governor and did not propose some form of tax relief, rebate, some other form of tax cut in their reelection year. If Governor Lamont comes out next February and tries to pay for an election year tax cut using one-time money, after telling his own party, you can't have new programs using one-time money, I think it's gonna get ugly. That's Keith Faniff, the Connecticut Mirror's budget guru. I like to think of him as the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the budget. If you want to hear the rest of our conversation from our special legislative preview event, including great questions from our audience and talk of transportation funding, you can go to ctmirror.org events. You can watch it there on Zoom. Thanks to Kyle Constable, Bruce Potterman, and Beth Hamilton. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson provided our Steady Beats at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, please do. It really helps. You can also provide us a review on iTunes. That helps as well. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.